Hello, Horror Fanatics! I'm Frank. And I'm Jen. And we welcome you to our weekly podcast, The Horror! Thank you for joining us as we dive deep into all things horror, supernatural, scary, and downright creepy. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe to add us to your regular rotation of podcasts. You can also submit any ideas, comments, and suggestions to our email address, O-T-H at seriously.com. Seriously decent. Or seriouslydecent.com, <laughs> yes. And uh, you can find out anything you want on the podcast at our webpage, ohthehorrorpodcast.com. So. So, here we are. Here we are. Yes. We're going to just hop right into it. Well, when this drops yeah. on... It's Monday, gonna be Supernatural May 3rd, Day, right? It'll be. It will be. Yeah. Supernatural I Day actually, or Paranormal Day, something like something that. Something like that. I have a story at the end. Oh, nice. In in lieu of that. Okay. But before we get to that, wow, we're doing the big one today. This is a heavy topic. This is heavy. Let's do a disclaimer up top that if you're well, well, easily triggered, this might not be the. I wouldn't even go with easily you. triggered, but. But there's a lot of things we're going to discuss here that go on in history. And let's just be honest. A lot of people don't know much about history. Very true. So Very true. definitely this will twig at the feelings and, and pull at the feelings. Yes. It did for me. And I'm yes. very, I'm pretty well versed on this kind of yes. historical era. I'd like to feel I am. I'm mm-hmm. not an expert. I'm not a pro, but, right. but I feel I can hold my own in some things and we're going to do a series of disclaimers here with Madame yes. Delphine LaLaurie. Correct. Or known. Marie Delphine LaLaurie. Yes. Well. Actually, Marie, Marie Delphine, Delphine McCarty. McCarty is actually the name. And yeah. we'll get into that. Yeah. However, slavery is going to be brought up. Correct. Slavery is going to be talked about in Correct. detail that, honestly, we're not even very comfortable talking about. Unfortunately, but it was the time. It was the and time. We can't discuss her story without discussing without discussing it. this because it's really a central role. Correct of her whole life. It's, a, it's central a central role, role of the story of the story itself, and there's no dodging around it. No. So we're going to bring at first a definition of terms. I well, I'm going yeah, to we'll cite do sources. my sources. Yeah, I yeah. specifically and solely used. Madame LaLaurie, Mistress of the Haunted House by Carolyn Morrow Long, which was an excellent book. I have that as a source, too. And what a phenomenal book. It was. And For the history of Louisiana. It should be noted that she didn't take any, I mean, she, at the very end, she put in some of her insights. But mm-hmm. the the details of the story were pulled specifically from church records, court records, newspaper articles, newspaper letters, articles, and family letters. But she didn't insert her opinion no, throughout the she whole did not. book until the conclusion. Correct. And the conclusion, she tastefully left that mm-hmm. as her own kind of opinions yes. and things that she gathered from everything she did. But I've read around, I, I started with, as usual, I turned to Wikipedia first and I used it as a guide mm-hmm. and never use it as a soul. Soul thing because right. it's just honestly it's too unreliable. Yeah, I found this in my search of searches 
mm-hmm. that was worth noting because I did pull some information from this uh, deepsouthmag.com. And I just found it interesting because they were actually bringing up the story during the makings of American Horror Story Coven. Yes. When that was going on. My favorite season. Yeah. Yeah. But the book, uh, Mistress of the Haunted House by uh, Carolyn Morrow Long, mm-hmm. very, very good. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Yes. If you're at all interested in this topic and want to know more, yes, I would confidently say this is the source. Correct. That you can get. There's yes. another book and... Um, Maybe I'll bring it up at a different point. I didn't have the notes for it. I didn't it. read it. Okay. But they basically say there's two main sources of two people that really did just a smash up job mm-hmm. on it. And she's one of them. And after reading it, I wholeheartedly believe it. Yeah. So I mean, we're not one for uh, guests, but boy. Yeah, no, I she think. She would be someone I would enjoy could, sitting down chatting Yeah, if with. we could get a, a chat with her, I think. You know, we could put her on that short list of guests that mm-hmm. we want to do. Mm-hmm. However, for a definition of terms, just so everybody's on the same page with things, Creole will be brought up often. Yes. And Creole is anyone natively born in the city and surrounding area was called Creole mm-hmm. in New Orleans, you know, in Louisiana. Correct. Post-Civil War and Reconstruction began and split the Creole designation. Just okay. so as a timeline, you could kind of put that in. So before Civil War and Reconstruction, the Creole designation was used heavily. Yes. There. Yes. Black or Negro was a person of pure African descent and assumed to be enslaved. Yes. Didn't mean they were, but it was just assumed. an assumption. Yes. A free black or free Negro was a person of unmixed African descent. Mm-hmm. So that separated mm-hmm. the black or Negro to free black or free Negro. Mm-hmm. A free man or woman of color meant a free person of mixed race. Right. Collectively, they were colored or free people of color. Correct. These were the terms. We didn't invent them. No, we did not. These men and women were further classified as free mulatto or half African and half European ancestry. These words were simply just descriptors and were not capitalized. So right. in official documents, you could find abbreviations and it would be like F.M.C. Slash F.W.C. Free woman of color. In lowercase mm-hmm. characters. And that would be free man of color, woman of color, mm-hmm. free woman of color. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, also we need to bring up some key dates to kind of put the time frame of mm-hmm. how all this is taking place. So on April 19th, 1775 through September 3rd, 1783 was the American Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Now what people have to understand was Louisiana was no part of this. Correct. It was a territory. Correct. And there was no... They were their own deal. They were their own deal and actually they were heavily occupied by the French. Or Spanish. Or Depending Spanish. on the time. Yep. Exactly. So it was more of it being France and Spain yeah, than actual America. Correct. Just to keep the record straight. April 30th, 1812 was when Louisiana became the 18th colony accepted into the Union. Mm -hmm. That's all dovetailed with the Louisiana Purchase. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that a little later. We will. April 12th, 1861 
to April 9th, 1865, what's what's known as the American Civil War. Yes. And this is when Louisiana seceded to the Union officially Mm -hmm. during the war. Okay. So what everyone needs to know as we proceed forward through this, all of this took place before Before the the Civil Civil War. War. Before April 12th, 1861. Yes. So with that being said, (laughs) we'll be the brave ones to hop into this topic here. Let's get into it. Definitely. So Marie Delphine LaLaurie is most known for torturing her slaves and leaving them to perish in a fire on Thursday, April 10th, 1834. The populace, upon seeing the condition of the poor souls, pulled from the fire, formed a mob, and went to the mansion to seek out LaLaurie only to learn the home was empty. The mob destroyed the home and its contents. She fled the city that day and was never brought to justice for her treatment of the slaves. She's been the subject of books, articles, movies, television shows, and a regular inclusion in any tour in the city of New Orleans. Still. Yeah. To this day. Yeah. So let's get into the history of the city and its infamous former occupant. So the Louisiana colony transferred from French rule to Spanish rule in 1763. The newly appointed Spanish governor, Antonio de Ulia, lacked the will and resources to assume leadership. As the French merchants, planters, and officials succeeded in banishing him, in 1769, the Spanish crown sent the Irish mercenary Alejandro O'Reilly to New Orleans with 2,100 troops to take back control of the city. Mm -hmm. Upon arrival, O'Reilly took the position of Captain General and Governor of Louisiana. The rebel leaders were executed by firing squad and the co-conspirators were imprisoned for 18 months and then permanently exiled. So, Marie was born Marie Delphine McCarty on March 19, 1787 to Louis Bartolome de McCarty and Marie Jean Larabee. She was their second child. Their first was her brother, Louis Bartolome. So, I mean, you know, same name as his father, not even first or second. Yeah. Whatever. And he was born in 1783. The McCarty clan included military officers, planters, and merchants. Her father was in the military and was knighted a chevalier of the Royal Military Order of St. Louis and her mother was a wealthy widow of a French merchant and sea captain. They were a big family. <sighs> well, they be Irish. Yeah. No, no I'm not <laughs> even saying big in size. Just yeah, big as a force. Uh, they they were... definitely became one of the most influential and wealthy land-holding families yeah. within New Orleans itself. Oh, yeah. So her parents started their life together with an indigo plantation that fronted the Mississippi River below New Orleans, which is what her mother had brought into the marriage. Mm -hmm. Her father purchased two additional adjacent plots of land and increased their plantation size to about 1,344 acres. Yeah. That's... It's massive. Enormous. Yeah. And when the indigo crop was infested by worms, they would have either switched to sugar and or cotton, whatever they could get to to grow, essentially. So little is known of her childhood as there are no existing letters to reference. That being said, life in late 18th century New Orleans was not all fun and games. No. The city was gripped by the fear of slave insurrection 
as a local slave owner, was murdered by his slaves in 1771. The two slaves who confessed to the crime, after being tortured on the rack, were sentenced to be, quote, dragged from the tail of a pack horse with a halter tied to the neck, feet, and hands. The town crier to go before announcing the crime they had committed. They must pass through the accustomed streets to the gallows where they will be hanged until dead, unquote. One of the convicted, Temba, was to have his body left on the gibbet until consumed. His hands were to be cut off and nailed up on the public road. Three other slaves were convicted as accomplices to the murder and received 100 to 200 lashes. Their ears were cut off, and one man was tarred and feathered and mounted on a pack beast. And I included this only because it needed... Well, we need is, to show this is how they were. She was brought up in a she was brought and, up in a tradition of slavery. Correct. And it was basically during a time when it was acceptable to use force to discipline slaves. Correct. And a lot of it, what people don't understand from the surface of it, was that discipline was driven by fear because at this time yes. the slave revolts were. Slave yes. revolts were always happening. Yes, and they rightfully were. so. Yes. it's a bad way to manage people. You yeah, know. I and, mean, but at the you're end of the day, for trouble. Yes, at, at the end of the day, you have this. Now, on top of this as well, there was yellow fever going around. Right. Yeah. So she was raised in this very turbulent time period. Yeah, definitely. So in July of 1791, there was an abortive uprising involving the Africans from the Mina Nation at Point Coupe, about 150 miles upriver from New Orleans. Marie would have been four. Mm -hmm. Earlier that same year, there was a massive slave revolt in St. Domingue and was ongoing through 1796. It started as an isolated outbreak at the sugar plantations near um, Cape Franchise in the northern part of the country, that escalated to full-scale war. In St. Domingue, it was the whites who were the minority and treated as the slaves themselves had been treated, or worse. The fighting there would last for 13 years as the slaves and free people of color fought for the abolition of slavery and equality for all people, regardless of color or former status. It's a long time. It's a very long time. 13 years. Yeah. We've been together for 13 years. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was long. (laughs) (laughs) Are you saying that our time together has been the same as a war? (laughs) No, I I wouldn't dare. (laughs) So while slavery had been abolished by the French Republic in 1794, Napoleon Bonaparte was pressured by those profiting from it to reinstate slave labor in the French colonies. So Napoleon sent his brother-in-law, General Charles Victor Emmanuel Leclerc, along with 20,000 troops to put down the rebellion once and for all. They arrived in Cape Frances in early 1802, but they were ultimately defeated by the inhabitants, and this resulted in the creation of the Republic of Haiti. Yeah, and what's weird about that is, I mean, just to show the reach that Napoleon had, yeah. Because Napoleon was known for being king of the seas, which yes. he was. Yes. I mean, that's not under debate. I never However, would have associated him he's with... He's handling these fool's errands yeah. out in Louisiana. <laughs> like, you know, this is what I think is amazing when you start reading about these type of historical accounts and just the climate and the times. And 
and you just look and it's like, yeah. So at some point, Napoleon's controlling the sea. Yeah. Oh, dominant and these control. little colonies and then, over here. Well, the thing was, is, but it wasn't just a little colony. That was a very lucrative seaport. Correct. It was. But also what he did is basically everything wet, like west of the Mississippi, not to the we'll, coast. We'll get into that. Yeah. As yeah. Well. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. meanwhile, back in New Orleans in 1795 in Point Coupe, the slaves again plotted another uprising to begin at the plantation of Julian Poydras. A large number of slaves, along with white sympathizers, who were inspired by the St. Domingo Re- Revolution and were hoping for the same outcome, decided they were going to try the same. Yeah. Their plot, however, was un- uncovered when an anonymous letter was sent to the Spanish governor and the conspirators were apprehended. So the would-be rebels of 57 slaves and three local whites were tried and convicted. In the end, 31 of the enslaved conspirators were flogged and sentenced to hard labor. The three whites were deported and sentenced to hard labor. And 27 slaves were hung and their severed heads displayed on pikes along the Mississippi River from Point Coupe to New Orleans. And this would not be the only time that happened. No. So the Spanish Codigro Negro, which was the Black Code, was more liberal than the Code Noir of the French colonial period. The Codigro Negro allowed enslaved persons, they were afforded more autonomy under the Spanish law, wherein skilled men and women could hire themselves out for wages or market their crafts or produce, and then using their earnings, they could purchase their own liberty. Mm -hmm. This was objected to by many slave owners and in their cabildo, which was composed of 12 prominent citizens who served as city councilmen and judges, they protested to the governor that the implementation of the new law would be impractical. Impractical. Practical. In other words, things is fine the way they are. Just leave it. Yeah, and that was more of the French stance yeah. over there. They just yep. Everything was working. They had their port working. Yeah. They're moving... If it's not broke, don't fix it. In their mind, yeah. Yeah. So also common at this time was the practice of cohabitation of white males with women of color, Mm -hmm. which led to a population of biracial free people of color. And in the early days of the colony, Louisiana suffered from a severe shortage of marriageable white women. And as a result, there were frequent sexual encounters and long-term domestic partnerships between white men and enslaved or free women of color. And this practice continued even after the ratio of white men to white women was more equal and ongoing still as Louisiana became a part of the U.S. Legally, a woman involved in such a relationship was called a concubine and among the French-speaking Creoles, a menagerie which was housekeeper or Mm -hmm. placé from the French verb placer, meaning to put under a man's protection. So Delphine's uncles, cousins, and father all openly cohabitated with one or more free women of color. Her brother never married, but had a domestic relationship and child with a white woman. Mm -hmm. And in most all cases, the McCarty men acknowledged their offspring from these liaisons by allowing their name, to be included on the baptismal records by signing a register or by going before a notary to claim paternity or at the very least by remembering their concubines and their children in their will. And to add, Carolyn uh, Long with the book Mm -hmm. 
meticulously had all of these documents printed in the she book. Did. She had all the records. She did. She had the price she of the did. slaves. She did. Like I said, the detail just can't be touted enough on she the book. She also had a very detailed tree for the McCarty family. Yes, yes. Um, she also included these cohabitations with the free exactly. women of color and the children that resulted from it. Mm -hmm. It was incredible. There's no way we could have included all of the information. Oh, no way, no way. Otherwise, no. you would have a five-hour podcast. Yeah, no, we're, we're not. <laughs> so there is speculation that this was one of the reasons for Delphine's actions later in life, but this also seems very unlikely. Yeah, we'll get to that. So the next thing I have is marriage to husband number one. You got anything? Should we go right into it? Yeah, let's go right okay. into it because we got a lot to get we through. We sure do. Delphine McCarty married Ramon Lopez y Angulo de la Candelaria in 1800 while Louisiana was still a Spanish colony. She was barely 14 yeah. and he was a 35-year-old widower. I'm going to say that again because it bears repeating. She was 14 and he was a 35-year-old widower. And here's the thing. That wasn't uncommon. It was. Oh, you just know. wait. Oh, no. I, I get into that too. <laughs> it gets so much worse from here, guys. Yeah. So Ramon had arrived in Louisiana in 1799 to take the position of intendant and this this officer of the Spanish crown was a second in command to the governor. So he served over the royal treasury, had jurisdiction in matters of police, justice, and war. And he would die five years later under curious circumstances, and Delphine would give birth to the couple's only child. Yeah, see, I, I read that um, he died as a result of a boat running yeah. aground. Yeah, I have that as well. And drowning. Um, but they also... I also read they, they aren't sure whether he drowned or whether he had a heart attack from mm -hmm. the impact. And because of the heart attack, when he fell forward, he yeah, drowned. Yeah. So he served eight years in the Spanish diplomatic service at Copenhagen and The Hague. He did six years as undersecretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs at Madrid. He was inducted into the prestigious Royal Order of Carlos III. He married Francisca Borja... Um, Borja Enderes, and referred to her as his soul. In 1799, he was appointed to intendancy of Louisiana and West Florida, replacing Juan Ventura Morales, and he felt that this was actually sending him into exile. Mm -hmm. He set sail to Louisiana in July of 1799, which was supposedly the worst season of the year to be sailing. Yeah. His wife, Borgia, died of fever and fatigue from the journey, and his personal valet also died, and his other servants were also in danger of dying. So he believed all of this could have been avoided if they had sailed one month later. Yeah. He married Delphine quickly in order to avoid scandal. And though the marriage to a 14-year-old seems odd, both civil and canon law at the time allowed females above the age of... 12, 12, 12, 12 to marry with parental consent because by age 12, girls were thought to possess, quote unquote, sufficient discretion 
to make the decision to marry and with puberty to have attained the, quote, capability of procreating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. What? Ever. So Spanish <laughs> policy required high-ranking government and military personnel, like Ramon, yeah. to obtain royal permission to wed local women. The reason being was they wanted to ensure that their um, reps over in the colony wouldn't be unduly influenced socially or commercially by these entanglements. Yeah. So Ramon did not get permission, as many government and military officials also married Louisiana women without permission. He did apply for the royal permission in April of 1800, noting Delphine's family's wealth, position, and their connection with the former Spanish governor of Louisiana. In early June 1800, Ramon petitioned the bishop to perform the wedding ceremony. Delphine's father approved the marriage and confirmed there would be no dowry. They were wed at the McCarty Plantation on June 11, 1800. His only notable act as intendant was his reopening of the African slave trade in 1800, mm-hmm. importation of which had been banned in 1796. And it had been banned as the slaves outnumbered the white population and there was worry of an uprising, as in St. Domingue, but a group of planters petitioned to reopen the trade due to the demand for labor for cotton and sugarcane cash crops. The Cabildo denied the petition, but Ramon permitted the importation, thus defying the Cabildo, and he also took this action without the governor's approval. So on the guise of marrying without consent, Mm -hmm. without royal consent, he was recalled back to Barcelona, where he learned he was to be exiled to the Atlantic coastal town of San Sebastian near the French border. Odds are the reason he was called back was because of this allowance for the African slave trade. Yep. And he was assigned to a low-level clerical position and thus started his letter-writing campaign. And he wrote so many letters requesting a relief from the exile. By 1804, he was pardoned and appointed the Spanish consul to New Orleans. And on his way back to New Orleans, a dispatch uh, on January 11th, 1805, reported he had died as a result of running aground of the ship. And sometime in early 1805, Delphine would give birth to their only child, a daughter, Marie Delphine Francisca Borja Lopez y Angulio de Candelaria. Yeah. I mean, imagine having to write that as a school girl. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's room on the check. You um, know. I need to turn my slate yeah. landscape. <laughs> so by the time Delphine returned to... New Orleans in 1805, Louisiana had become an American possession. The Spanish ceded the colony secretly to the French Republic on July 30th, 1802, but it wouldn't be official until November 30th, 1803. Less than a month later, Napoleon sold not only the port of New Orleans to the United States, but the entire Gulf Coast to the Canadian border between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. Louisiana was officially transferred to the U.S. on November 20th, I'm sorry, December 20th, 20th. 1803, in a ceremony at the Cabildo in New Orleans, 
and Lower Louisiana, including the city of New Orleans, became the territory of Orleans. Yeah, you think about it. Back to what we were saying about Napoleon. Yeah. And, I mean, they had him representing the French, or France in this case. Mm Mm-hmm. The entire area from the Gulf Coast to the Canadian border between the Mississippi River and Rocky yeah. Mountains. You stare at that on a map. and That's what doubled the size of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole Louisiana, Louisiana purchase. purchase Agreement. Yeah. And, and that's where there's this separate side of history of the U.S. as we know it compared to the original colonies. Yeah. And the whole reason the states were after this property is because they didn't want France involved at all. Right. Yes. Basically, if they, you know, the Mississippi was a massive trade route. Mm-hmm. Massive trade route. Yeah. That was and, huge. And for the states going after that property, they had to yeah. work with, with France to do that. And that was all Napoleon. That's the crazy part of it. Yeah. That's how powerful Napoleon was. And it just, uh, it's, it's insane, but also he, and the whole Louisiana purchase is a separate deal. If you're not really, if you're into history a little bit and don't know much about it, it's a great thing to read into to see how the U S got the land Mm -hmm. from Napoleon Mm -hmm. and the, and the stakes that Napoleon was in at that time. Right. Because things were starting to turn the tide. Right. He couldn't manage everything. All of it. Yeah. So the American newcomers had some thoughts about the Louisiana Creoles. Yeah. The Creoles were viewed as childlike, lacking business sense, addicted to frivolous pleasures, woefully uneducated, and devoted to uh, Roman Catholicism in a way that bordered on idolatry. So this was everything that the Creoles held dear. Their cultural practices, their French language, and their religion— they were all under attack. The whole system of civil law, yep. everything. So cue the return of 18-year-old Delphine with yeah. child. Returning to this as a as a widow. Yeah. With her daughter. With a newborn baby. So she left. Everything was kind of status quo. Yeah. Things were, I mean, NBD, in modern, in modern no ways. Deal. Yeah, in modern <laughs> ways, not cool. But, yeah. But for them at that time, quote yeah. unquote, cool. All of this takes place while she's gone. Yes. And she returns to this whole new Louisiana, this whole new New yeah. Orleans. A little bit of chaos. And it's just so much confusion. Uh, the leadership was volatile and just the whole animosity of Louisiana Creoles, as you mentioned. Right. Yep. With American newcomers. She's returning back to this, trying to get her her stake in life. Yeah. And in two years, she's trying to maneuver through all of that. Q. Husband number two. Husband number two. Go for it. on her 20th birthday, March 19th, 1807, she married Jean-Paul Blanc. Her husband was a 43-year-old widower, and where Ramon had seemed a weak whiner, Jean-Paul was every bit her match. He was a merchant slave trader, lawyer, banker, state legislator, and associate of the pirates Jean and Pierre Lafitte. There was no marriage contract, but Delphine agreed that the sum of $33,070 accruing to her from the estate of her mother, as well as every other property which she should happen afterwards to acquire, would be her dowry. Mm-hmm. 
this inheritance would be about $613,000 as of 2011. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And that was a lot of money back then. Yeah. So let's get into their time together. So the inheritance from her mother included a downtown plantation on the bank of the Mississippi, Mississippi, 52 slaves plus livestock and farm equipment. Her father made a gift of household furnishings, another plantation below the city, a lot on Chartres Street and 26 slaves. Her total worth was about $130,850 or about $2 million yeah. as of 2011. So in July, Delphine's father sold two plantations and 53 slaves to his son, Louis Bartholomew, and his son-in-law, Jean Blanc, as joint owners. In 1808, Blanc bought a two-story brick townhouse on Royal Street near the corner of Conti, next to the Bank of Louisiana, where he was the director. Delphine had three daughters and a son with Blanc. He was involved in local politics about the same time as he arrived there. Yeah. And he was viewed as an adversary to the U.S. government. So much so, a letter about him was written to President Jefferson, noting he is disliked by the Native Americans residing in and around um, New Orleans. His attachments are supposedly wholly foreign, and he is regarded as a dangerous man. So news of this guy makes it all the way to El Presidente. The big seat, yeah. So while Lopez y Angulo reopened the slave trade in 1800, in 1804, the American government banned the importation of slaves from, quote, any port or place without the limits of the U.S., end quote into the territory of Orleans after October 1st of that year. So this excluded slaves from Africa and the Caribbean. The citizenry protested loudly that sugar and cotton, and cotton plantations would be valueless without a plentiful supply of black, non-free labor, as the free white men would not work in the unhealthy, semi-tropical climate. So, as a result, there is ample evidence that Blanc was buying and selling human merchandise, both legal and illegal, as one of his primary occupations. Mm -hmm. And he circumvented the law by purchasing captives by way of Charleston instead of smuggling directly in from Africa. Well, he was associated with a pirate. Pirates. Yeah, plural. Mm -hmm. Not many people have that on their resume. I know, right? Yeah. I mean, associated with pirates. <laughs> in 1807, Jefferson signed a bill into law to abolish the African slave trade altogether. The bill went into effect on January 1st, 1808, after which it became illegal, quote, to import or bring into the U.S. or territories thereof from any foreign kingdom, place, or country any Negro, mulatto, or person of color with the intent to sell or dispose of such as a slave, or to be held to service of labor. So, January 8th, 1811, as carnival season was getting underway, there was an insurrection in St. John the Baptist Parish, a sugar, a rich sugar-producing area on the German coast above New Orleans. It was organized by an enslaved mulatto named Charles, and he recruited slaves from neighboring sugar plantations, and some were Louisiana Creoles, and some were American Negroes from the Upper South. The slave army was joined by Maroons who had been living in the swamps for years. The rebellion was put down by the militia, aided by local planters. Charles was captured, his hands removed, 
thighs broken, shot dead, and his corpse burned. 21 rebels were killed during the skirmish. 45 were executed by firing squad. Their heads were displayed on pikes along the river as they did before. Yeah. Ten months after the Battle of New Orleans, Jean Blanc died at age 50. On October 7th, 1815, Delphine was 28 and left to settle his estate, but his estate was encumbered in debt, and she renounced the community of property that existed between herself and Blanc to save her personal assets from being seized by his creditors. And in order to keep her country home, Delphine had to repurchase it from the syndics of her late husband's creditors. She paid $17,000 for the plantation fronting the river below the city. Yeah, it's um, what what's kind of weird, too, is how... He just died. He in just this. died. There isn't really like a, a <laughs> good... A, yeah. And not to insinuate anything of like one reason or another, but it's just kind of strange because no matter where you read... And even it's this, a conspiracy, man. And even this woman here who did just so much investigating, yeah. nothing on how this guy dies. Nothing. You know, he just, so, just dies. I think uh, with his lack of love in the area, <laughs> it could have been a number of things. <laughs> Any number of things is But, I mean, it, you find it interesting at this point. She's eight years with this guy. And now she's tw- she's a 28-year-old widow. She's yep. got five young kids. Yep. Ages 11, 6, 3, one and a half years, and a six-month-old. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And what was interesting I found with this, again, is the Louisiana civil law would allow a wife or widow, quote, the privilege of being able to exonerate herself from the debts contracted during marriage by renouncing partnership or community gains. Yep. So what she did was she was able to retain control her stuff. of her property, yep. but she had to give away all of his stuff, everything else, yep. all of his stuff. And then as you mentioned, she repurchased. Yeah. One uh, of her, um, the, the country home, yeah, which yeah. I believe if I'm reading it correctly, was the home that had been willed to her by her mother, the one that fronted the river. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And during her widowhood, eight of her bonds people perished. They were mostly women and children. And of the women, most of them were um, at childbearing age Yeah, when they perished. Well, and an interesting part during this timeline is her father dies mm-hmm. October 21st and 1824. Yeah. And at this point, I mean... Yeah, Delphine's, you know, let's see, just looking at the timeline, another 10 years, she's getting towards 40. Yeah. She's not a young girl under the influence of a husband or a father. No. And even through the settlement of Jean Bloch's um, massive debts, she, you know, was almost at the edge of financial ruin. Yes. The inheritance from her father plus her own shrewd real estate dealings. Right. Put her back on really on top, solid yeah. monetary footing. Yeah. And this is when she meets husband number three. Here we go. Leonard Louis Nicolas Lalaurie was born December 6th, 1802. He studied medicine at the Sorbonne in, pa- in Paris. And in 1824, he was a medical st- student at the University of Toulouse. 
October of 1824, he was headed to New Orleans, Louisiana, to seek his fortune. Mm -hmm. December 8th, 1824, one day after his 22nd birthday, he and five travelers boarded a merchant ship for the New World. And on February 17th, 1825, his ship docked in New Orleans. Upon departure from the ship, he posted an ad in the local papers that a French physician had arrived and was acquainted with the means newly discovered in France to destroy hunchbacks. See, what's funny was when I was originally reading this, <laughs> they said that uh, the letter, uh, the least the, the phrase that I saw, it was of, uh, he had the means of destroying hunches. <laughs> and at first... I was like, wait, is he a detective? Mm -hmm. Like he's going to stop detective hunches? You know, he's going to actually use medical proof. (laughs) You know, and then, and then I'm reading, I was like, no, it's hunchbacks. It's hunchbacks. Yeah. Yeah. So he had been a member of the Masonic Lodge and no one is sure how he and Delphine met. It could have been, he did join a Freemason Mm -hmm. uh, group in Louisiana It could have been one of their functions. It could have been mutual friends, or it could have been while he was treating one of her children. So yeah, because she did have a uh, a child with a disability. Yeah. By eighteen twenty six, he and Delphine were an item, and she was pregnant. She was thirty eight at the time, and there is reference in a letter that Lalaurie was treating her daughter Pauline for her hunched back. Yeah. August 13, 1827, Delphine gave birth to a son named Jean-Louis Leonard Lalaurie. January 12, 1828, Delphine and Lalaurie are married. Again, he brought nothing into the marriage, and it was on her fortune that they would make their house. Well, he brought $2,000 to the marriage. He brought nothing well, into the well, marriage. Well, Delphine was worth more than $66,389.58, which was about $1.5 million. It was about $1.5 million in the current market. And in the contract, she retained her fortune, and Leonard recognized his son as their natural child. Yeah. And little Louis retained all the rights of a child born during their marriage. So many were told their actual wedding was June 12th, 1828, to imply that their son had actually been born after they were married. Yeah, just to get the whole wedlock thing. She was 40 at the time of their marriage. No, and he was he 25. He was 25. 25. His father had maintained in his letters to Louis that he should marry a wealthy, well-connected woman. He just forgot to add his age. His age, yeah. So while it was common for Do you know that Delphine's first daughter was only two years, years younger, younger than he was? Than he was. Sure yeah. did. <laughs> so while it was common at the time for an older man to marry a younger woman, mm-hmm. this union of an older woman and a younger man was one it was unheard of. Virtually unheard of, yeah. At this time. Yeah. So in 1831, Delphine purchased what would be the infamous house at the corner of Royal and Hospital Street. They lived lavishly in their new home, funded entirely by Delphine, as Dr. Lalaurie had not yet established a medical practice. And November 6th, 1832, Delphine petitioned for separation from bed and board of her husband. So this was a separation of body and goods. And in, in her letter, she virtually, like, It was to the letter of the law, and she claimed, quote, 
He treated her in such a manner as to render their living together insupportable, end quote. Yeah. The fire. Uh, let me see. You got anything between 1832 and before, the fire? Before we hop into that. Well, it's also just a note that there is only speculation about their relationship on how they got together. There's nothing right. stated or found. You know, they don't know if the lady who had been widowed for 10 years developed a passion for for him and maneuver the naive young man to her bed was her pregnancy an accident that one you you could probably lean towards or was it calculated to entrap him you don't know any of this stuff right uh was it lalaurie infatuated by her charm and especially her money and status who pursued delphine to you know in response to his father's injunction to marry a lady with wealth and social connections yeah were they just simply in love but i mean honestly he had a lot to gain He's he a sure doctor. Did. She was mm-hmm. very well established in yep. the community. It should be noted. I mean, that we'll every get into reference this. to her. It was that she was very, very beautiful, connected and, and beautiful, very attractive. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I could get you know there are worse things you could do than to marry a beautiful, rich, wealthy, yeah. well connected woman with which to you know create this it's what hopes and dreams are made of exactly and we'll get into that a little later but it's it's hard to tell you know even like the the madame's claims were they even true about the doctor yeah with all that you know none of that's concrete it's just what she wrote down uh dr lawlery granted her wishes as a way of distancing himself from her behavior right and he claimed that it should be noted that... And then there's the neighbor, which there, I'll get into later, the gossipy neighbor. Yeah, there was a charge against her because she there was a paid receipt for $300 mm-hmm. for the services of an attorney. An attorney, yeah. So it is speculative that that invoice was him representing her in a case against her. Uh, the poor treatment of her of of her slaves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And but there's nothing concrete. And again, all it is yeah, is the none of this stuff receipt. is concrete. There's no note. There's no nothing. And you have these really gossipy letters written by the neighbor. Yep. Uh, to his friend, yep. where he said basically, you know, they don't have a happy household. They oh, fight yeah. often separate. Then they return to each other. You know, which would, you know, he was putting quote in the letter, which would make one believe that someday they will abandon each other completely. Mm-hmm. So they weren't getting along. No, it wasn't a happy household. No, no. You said that this would be a happy, a place. happy place. <laughs> so the fire. Yeah. April tenth, eighteen thirty four. A fire broke out that Thursday morning. The fire started in the kitchen, which was at the back of the house, with the slave quarters just above. So while others were helping the LaLaurie's move valuables to a safe place, Judge Jacques-Francois Canange asked Leonard, this is Dr. LaLaurie, to, quote, have the slaves move to a place of safety. Leonard's response, with much rudeness, was, quote, there are those who would be better employed if they would attend to their own affairs instead of officially intermeddling with the concerns of other people. At this point, the flames were quickly spreading and overtaking the building, and that's when the judge gave the order to break down the doors. Rescuers found seven slaves more or less horribly mutilated. This is a quote. 
suspended by the neck with their limbs stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. They had been confined for several months in the situation from which they had thus been providentially rescued and had merely been kept in existence to prolong their sufferings and to make them taste all that the most refined cruelty could inflict, end quote. The, quote, elderly negress, whose great age should have created pity, declared to the mayor that it was she who had set the house afire with the intention of terminating the sufferings of herself and her companions or perishing in the flames, end quote. And this was a quote from the New Orleans Bee newspaper. It should also be noted at this time when the fire broke out, it was news. It was news that afternoon. Yeah, it was, it was in the paper. It was quick And news. that was unheard of at yeah. the time. Like they didn't post information about they didn't that really type do, of stuff. They didn't really the do that type of news. No. And this oh. would be the talk of the But of it would the be the talk for because a, for a week or more. Yeah, and I think that comes with her high position. Of course. Of, but also the the way that these people were found. Well, yeah, and the thing there's a very consistent there's consistent parts of this story and there's not consistent parts. There's Correct. very exaggerated parts and this is where you get into you know, people have to write things. Yeah. People need listeners. So the more crazier. Got to earn that money check. Yeah. Or even just to get the fame, mm-hmm. you know, and be a successful quote unquote writer. And that. Got to get that notoriety. That hasn't changed at no. all. It's been a lot before this and, so and a lot after. How yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. However, the one consistent thing was the amount in there. Seven. Yes. The number seven was yep. very consistent So from the judge who actually broke the I door down. I actually have his quotes. And, and went in to. He gave a statement yeah. to the mayor immediately after. Yeah. And they the injured were removed to the house of the Cabildo. So Judge Kanange's statement is as follows. Quote, on arriving, he was apprised of there being in one of the apartments some slaves who were chained and were exposed to perish in the conflagration. He determined, upon addressing both Monsieur and Madame Lalaurie, who replied to his inquiries, that the allegation was slander. End quote. When he again, quote, demanded of um, M. Lalaurie if he had any slaves in his garret, he, Mr. Lalaurie, replied in an insulting tone that Canage would do much better by remaining at home rather than dictating to them the laws. He instructed Messrs. Montreux and Fernandez to go into the garret of the service wing to make the necessary search, observing that he had himself attempted to do so but was almost suffocated by the smoke, end quote. He stated Felix Lefebvre, quote, said he had he had broken the bars of one of the apartments and that he had discovered some slaves. Two negresses were incarcerated, whom they liberated from this den. One was wearing an iron car, uh, collar, very large and heavy, and was chained with heavy irons by the feet and walked with great difficulty. He had no opportunity of examining the other who was behind. And the old woman, quote, lying on a bed under a mosquito bar, had a deep wound on her head and appeared to be quite feeble. She went to the mayor's office where the first two had been removed. And that's the last of his statement, at least that I could find in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Madame, most likely accompanied by her family, fled uh, Royal Street the afternoon of the fire. A large crowd had appeared and were demanding justice. Finding no one present, they broke the doors and windows, rushed into the property, and proceeded to destroy whatever they could get their hands on, including every article of furniture which was thrown into the street to be smashed. Everything was destroyed. Everything. The panels of the floor, the wainscot on the walls, the stairs, the balusters, even some of the iron balconies were torn down, and nearly the entire edifice had been pulled down as well. Nothing remained but the walls, which were vandalized with graffiti. Well, and they brought the seven that were found into the uh, town building Mm -hmm. to get treatment through there. And there's actual written evidence, so to speak, that about 2,000 people went through in like a line to see the condition of these people. And then immediately, now, what people got to understand is at that time, that's like half the population yeah. of New Orleans. That was huge. That's a massive this amount of people. Whole thing this whole thing just was to huge. just to get people on the track of it. Yeah, like you know, imagine you're in this forty three hundred, forty eight hundred person city, city town area. Yeah, and half of them are going to check this out. Yes. You know, they're they're literally walking in a single file line through the town building to see the condition of these people firsthand so right. they can see it to believe it. Because people started talking about it and that's where that's where the stories get a little muddy. Because some they people do. say, Oh, there was a hole in someone's head and they were and there stirring were their brains with oh, a yeah. spoon. Yeah. And who really knows any of that? I really right. wanna That's I wanna what accept- I liked about this is she yeah. just took the statements? The statements, yeah. And even the and things the that were in the And the statement of the judge never said anything like that. Correct. It was just defi- disfigured, yep. you know, yep. beaten, Essentially, chained up. They were, they were in a prisoners, bad state. Prisoners in, were, a, in a house. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, it, one thing I can add is that they, they believe that Madame skipped town with the help of her coachman. Correct. And that afternoon before the mob arrived, she fled first to Mobile, yes. Alabama, then New York and Paris. And a sighting by a poet, William Cullen, uh, Cullen Bryant, puts her on a ship named the Poland, sailing from New York to, uh, to France mm-hmm. in June of 1834. Yes. There's also speculation that he was the one that told her you got to go. You got to leave now because there's, he saw what was happening. There's a ton of evidence that suggests it. Now, yes. there's nothing committed to it. Correct. However, they did the mob after they busted the house all up and everything. They also found the coach. Correct. Uh, and they destroyed the coach and they killed the horses. Yeah. Which, yeah. again, this is where mobs go fucking crazy. Yeah. You know, because what did the horses fucking do to you? Nothing. Yeah. You know, I mean, but just talk about the rage of it. But and I, I mean, even the furnishings and stuff, I, I, I can get the rage. Oh, I can get it. But all. why yeah. wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you take it? You could sell it. You could get money. At no. least you could get something out of it. This Instead, is where they just destroy everything. Yeah, this is where. I mean, we got to kind of figure out where we're heading with this because I have my own kind of shtick with all that. But mm-hmm. I know you. You said you didn't have much on the exile. 
I didn't do anything yeah, on the exile. They France left to France. Yeah. They did go to Louis' family. Um, it was noted in letters that his father uh, was not pleased to find out that uh, Marie was his son's wife. He thought she was just a friendly benefactor. Yeah. And he never acknowledged her. Um, so, so we'll get to the what really happened here. Okay. According to Oh the Horror podcast. Okay. We ready for that? All right. I let's, think because we're hitting me. close to the yeah. hour mark. But so I think it's interesting how people get lost in the weeds with this story yes. as you read it. Because yes. some will say that Madame Lalaurie was nothing but a kind hearted person. Nothing but a kind hearted person. She didn't have a cruel bone in cruel her body. Cruel bone in her body. Nicest She's person nice. you could ever meet. She freed slaves. So she freed slaves. How could she, how could how could she, she do, do this? this? Yeah. Yep. It gets back to the whole slave revolt thing out of fear. I think you got to do this give and take type thing as a slave owner. And what many can't accept the fact is that she, you know, she could do this and proclaim her innocence, but it's also her husband's innocence. They try to proclaim that. He's definitely not blameless. No. When he's standing there and this is my whole thing. He's telling the judge, mind your business. The one fact that everyone has to draw a circle around (laughs) on this whole thing is that both of them were fine with that house burning down to the ground. Correct. They were. Regardless of whether materials were getting pulled out or anything, they were fine with that house burning to the ground. Yes. And there were other vicious slaveholders in Louisiana and women, believe it or not, were were said to be the worst offenders. And I get that. And I'm not saying that as a guy. No. What I'm saying is, is you're a woman, white woman next to this plantation owner. Yep. You're married together. Yep. You have this massive, we'll call it an empire because that's what the fuck it is. Yep. It's an empire. And all of a sudden your husband is banging the help. Yep. And the worst part is, is after he bangs the help and she has a child. He's recognizing the he's child. He's recognizing the child. Which, and the child can be in the will. Correct. Can be in everything. The whole bloodline which continues to go down, which reduces the not inheritance only, for the natural children. Yeah, for your or, baby. But also you. Yeah, for you and yep. your your kids. Mm-hmm. And I could see where the hostility yes. would grow yeah. and grow and fester and yep. fester. And, and then finally you just... The stories I read that women did to these slaves. It was Now, coming from a male grown up in the United States, you have this idea that it's the male plantation owner out in the fields, whipping slaves, beating them up, doing whatever. Yeah. You never hear in the movies. You never hear in history or stories unless you dig deep into this stuff. Correct. That women were going nuts on yes, the help. They were. They were more brutal than and that's the what, men. They were all all of these kind of mm-hmm. stories that I'm linking together. It's the people writing this stuff yes. saying that the women were the worst offenders of this whole thing. Yes. So the big question is is why the outrage on this singular event? Because in all honesty, the way they were found was no worse. Well, then, I mean, her transgressions were so extreme that even this society that's in this area. Right. I think they, they said they crossed the line. But here's the big thing. The fire exposed it to the public. It did. And so that's like a group of politicians pointing to a single politician who got called out for lying. Yeah. That always just drives yeah. me nuts. Where they're just like, oh, he's, he was lying. How? 
how, how reprehensible dare and he? how dare he or how dare she, you know, and it's like, you're all fucking exactly. liars, you know, their, I mean, their biggest sin was that they got caught. Yeah, exactly. That it was exposed if this and fire, everybody saw their dirty secret. If this fire never happened, yeah, life would have went on. Yeah. And I hate B-A-U, to say it. Business as usual. And, and the thing was, is this was a really, really nasty Set a situation, you know, it was. it's a nasty situation. It was situation. a very nasty circumstance. And I mean, her son wrote his brother-in-law in 1842. Yeah. Quote, I truly believe that my mother never had any idea concerning the cause of her departure from New Orleans. Unquote. He, uh, he and his sister also wrote to the uncle because she wanted, she to, wanted go to go back. back. And they're like, will you tell her she can't do that? Yeah. So, so this is where you're, you're dealing with a, a large amount of lunacy here. She's broken. You know, there's a large amount of lunacy yeah. here. And I think my take on it with her is I think she probably, w- she was beautiful. All the pictures and yep. like paintings I saw, she was beautiful. Yep. I think she probably had a very kind tone mm-hmm. hearing from the other testimony and evidence of other people that she was kind. She yeah. was nice. Uh, there's, there was stories of her that she would have uh, wine at dinner yeah, and half of the wine would be gone and they're getting up to move in a different room and she would have the help. She would give it to like yeah, the she'd butler give it to or maid or you know, whoever was behind her. her serving her and say, here, you, you have the you rest. You finish it. Which at that time, no, you not don't really, do that. not really a deal, you know. So I think there was a lot of this kind of lawlessness around her mm-hmm. of what she would do. Mm-hmm. This goes back to her first marriage, yeah, because she was sneaking around with him. That's how I read it, mm-hmm. that she was sneaking around with him, and so she had this rebellious side to her. Yes, and I think what she probably was was a kind person with what they call a firm hand. And, and I think if you crossed her, forget it, forget it. Yep. And that's what a lot of evidence and, and statements and things like that, well, that that's people came out. They said, servants yeah, said. her own servants they were said like, Madame, she was nice. She was she great. Was, she was fine until you crossed her. But she didn't want her mad. Yep. And what even states this even more is the kids letters say the same exact thing mm-hmm. when they were talking about her as a grandmother. Yep. And they were talking about with her kids and they were writing back and forth and they were like, ah, oh, if you got you know, Mima or whatever the hell they called her, <laughs> you know, yeah. don't get her mad. Yeah. And they were just saying, don't get her mad. And, and the whole thing of her wanting to go back, I mean, it really just shows the lunacy and that stuck in a certain era of things where, Hey, I didn't do anything wrong. What the yeah. fuck's the well, problem? You know, uh, let's go back. Yeah. I want to go back. I want to do. And also being that high level of society where you just, you know, it's like the blood countess. Yeah. I, I saw a lot of parallels with this in The Blood Countess, mm-hmm. which I always got to pitch another show on here. So if you yeah, haven't right? checked The Blood Countess, <laughs> check it out. But but I uh, but I really saw the parallels there of just, yeah. it's that unchecked power yes. where you can just do whatever the fuck you want and you don't have yeah, to worry about anything. Bullshit. And people can look back at all this and they can say, how did people accept that? How did people do it and all that? And I say, we're going through it right now mm-hmm. with human trafficking. We are. We are going through it right now with human trafficking. And there's n- and there's not anybody doing peak. anything about it. Epstein, I got to laugh. The whole thing with Epstein, what happened there? Nothing. So Nothing happened with Epstein. Do you know? Besides him hanging himself, quote unquote. 
but have the you fact heard is about is, Peter Nygaard? What? He's a Canadian fashion designer. Yeah. And he is accused of Is he into pizza? I'm just kidding. He was in he was charged with trafficking and he's supposedly worse than mm. Epstein. Oh yeah. Weinstein. There's a ton of them. All of them. They're they're and, all over. And that's the thing is they're all in it. Yeah. And this is where I'm getting at. Look at yep. Epstein with the island. Yeah. Now here's well, the thing. Peter Nygaard had a place out in the Bahamas and he was telling billionaires, you got to come out here. This is great. Mm -hmm. It's like you can do whatever you want. Yeah. All he had to do was pay people off. Yeah. No. And that's it the was thing. It ridiculous. Is, but you think about it. The whole Epstein thing, it's now been well over a year. Nothing. Was it two years yeah. for Epstein? And, and what do we know? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, we know some things. Yeah. We know that Clinton had, you know, basically his own seat on a plane there. And, you know, there's countless other people they had on the logs. Yeah. But here's the thing. And this is where it's different than the fire. And this is, I wanted to bring this up because human trafficking needs the fire. It does. They need the thing where they walk in and there's just like kids everywhere. Yes. You know, or they have these, you know, just human traffic people. Yeah. They need the fire, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. They need the the building to burn down and have, you know, why was there 30 kids, all minors in here? Yeah, you exactly. You know, all that type of stuff. That hasn't happened. No. And the problem is, and this is where people, I'm sorry, you got to wake the fuck up. Yeah. I hate saying that. I hate when people are like, you got to wake up, man. Yeah. You got to wake up. Wake up, but America. The, yeah, but the <laughs> fact is, is you got to wake up that all this stuff happened and nobody is getting in trouble. No. You mean to tell me the whole thing with Epstein, they couldn't arrest anybody? Anybody? Anybody besides Epstein and Gislaine uh, Gis 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 or whatever her name yeah. is, Maxwell or whatever. They're the only two. That's it. That's it. They're yeah. the only two. And this chick's still alive because I guarantee she's got a book with yeah. everyone's fucking name on it. Yeah. And she's... She's got the deets. She's got the deets. And she did. She was the handler for everybody. Yes. She was the yep. intermediary. Mm -hmm. And not just the intermediary of, like, pursuing you as a client and getting yep. you in and having you... But also getting the, the people. Mm -hmm. And this is crazy. And, and if people think it's, you know, a, a bunch of shit... Who was that, uh, what was the name of that chick out in California that had all the stars? Remember Martin Sheen was one of them. And Heidi she had Fleiss? Heidi, or is it Heidi Fleiss? With the little black book she had. Yeah, she went Heidi to prison. Fleiss had the black yeah. book. Yeah, and it's the same exact thing. She was the Hollywood madam. Yeah, she was the Hollywood madam. That's right, Heidi Fleiss. And mm -hmm. and she had the the book yeah. of all the names and yep. all the people. And it's like this this stuff doesn't stop. It keeps going. No, yeah. And it's on a level that you shouldn't be comfortable with. Yes. But yet everybody is fucking comfortable with it. Yes. It's insane. Yes. And like I said, this needs the fire. Yes. This needs where the, the building, you know, but the problem is, is they're out on like a Caribbean island where they got the own police and they got their own oh, yeah. security yeah. and they got everything. But this is when I laugh when people sit there and they look back at slavery and they look at all this stuff and they're, I don't know how people so put up outraged. with this. Yeah. I'm yeah. so outraged. I don't know how Where's people. Where's your outrage for yeah. this? And that's where like the stuff with Hollywood. Fuck you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm going to say it. You don't want to listen to podcasts. Go away. Yeah. I just, you know, I'm tired of Hollywood saying how terrible this is and how terrible that is when you guys are sucking dick for jobs. Yeah. You're giving up your ass for work. 
saying that that's this is far better than being a waitress, which is an insult to a waitress who's yeah. working her fucking ass off yes. to keep her kids fed and refuses to suck dick for money. Exactly. You know, and yeah. it has some morals and has some obligations. And I'm sorry, my tirade, I'm ending it now because it just it's only going to get worse. <laughs> but it drives me nuts. Absolutely yeah. drives me nuts. Yeah. And that's I had real deep just emotions going through this, which most of the time I'm fucking emotionless. <laughs> But it pours out in crap like this. But I think the author, Carolyn uh, Morrow Long, summed this up perfectly. Mm -hmm. She did all this research and she reached this conclusion. And she said, I'm going to just quote the book. I believe that Delphine McCarty Lollary's cultural background, her unhappy relationship with her third husband, and her erratic and undoubtedly deranged personality resulted in the violent outbursts of temper that led her to commit hideous deeds. Had she lived in another time and another place, her fury would have found some other outlet. Because she lived in early 19th century New Orleans, she tortured the slaves over whom she had power. Mm -hmm. And until the day of the fire, she got away with it. Yes. And I just, after reading that whole book mm -hmm. and reading that statement, yeah, I just... I really couldn't say it any better. No. And that's why I wanted to quote her up perfectly. And if you really believe that quote is great, read the book. Yes. The book is fantastic. It is. It's uh, it's unreal. The stuff you read, you just shake your head. And yes. You, and I'll say it again with a lot of these. I am so glad I am alive today. Yeah. And I yeah. know there's a lot of people alive today that don't have it as good as I do. Right. I, I am I aware that. of that. Yes. But, but this is a whole level. And, and there's exactly. other countries that have these that problems have still. This. Right. Yes. But to think of where we are yes. as a country, mm -hmm. I'm thankful for that. I'm blessed for that. Yes. I really am. And for other countries that are going through this, I feel terrible that they're going through it. Right. And, and it's to a point where I do want to figure out how to help in some way or another. Right. I think these are the places we need to help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These are the places that, yeah. you know, and, and that's what drives me nuts. My last thing on the whole human trafficking thing is you have all these people of power standing. And it's like I said, you know, it's a group of politicians pointing to the single one who got called out for lying. Yeah. It's like Martin Sheen getting caught with that. Um, not Martin Sheen, Charlie Sheen, Charlie Sheen with the little black book with Heidi flight. Yeah. It's like, really, you're going after him. You're all fucking doing it. Yeah. Every single one He's of you. He's no worse than any any yeah. of the rest of no, you. No, you're all the yeah. fucking same. Yeah. Until you say you're not and prove you're not. Yeah. You know, I mm -hmm. just, it's, it's, uh, they're just slime. <laughs> sorry. Telling me how you really sorry. feel. Sorry. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> However, today is, uh, well, not today. Monday, when we release this. When this drops. Yes. It's going to be Supernatural Day, right? Or it's a supernatural or paranormal paranormal day. day. I think okay. it's paranormal day. Either way, it works for us. I have a story. Oh, what's your story, Morning Glory? The story is the Axe Murder House. Have you ever heard of it? No, you're not doing that because that's going to be one of our episodes. And yes, the Velisca. Yeah. Axe Murder House. Then let's just do it like a year from now, and everybody will forget this story ever happened. It's just a quick story. <laughs> okay. You want to do that? You can. 
because I was kind of happy to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> Just know we're going to do an episode on this. Yeah, it's Velisca, right? Yes. Yeah. The Velisca Axe Murder House. Let me check my list. In, Vel- in Velisca, Iowa, is a well-known tourist attraction for ghost hunters and horror lovers alike. The site of a gruesome, unsolved 1912 murder in which six ad- children, and I'm briefly going over that. Yeah. And two adults had their skulls completely crushed by the axe of an unknown perpetrator. Lizzie Borden? (laughs) So the house was purchased in 1994. Okay. Restored to its 1912 condition and converted into a tourist destination. It it cost $428 a night to stay at the old haunted home, where visitors always report strange paranormal experiences, such as visions of a man with an axe roaming the halls, or the faint screams of children. There's part of the story I just couldn't resist. But in November of 2014, the haunting took a darker turn. Robert Stephen Lorison Jr., 37, of Rhinelander, Wisconsin, was on a regular recreational paranormal visit with friends when true horror st- uh, struck. His companions found him stabbed in the chest, an apparently self-inflected wound called 911, and Larson was brought to a nearby hospital before being helicoptered to Crichton University Medical Center in Omaha. The Montgomery County Sheriff's Office said Larson suffered the self-inflicted injury at about 12.45 a.m., which is around the same time the 1912 axe murderers were in the house Mm. when it began. Dun, dun, dun. Larson recovered from his injuries, but has never spoken publicly about what occurred that day. For Martha Lynn, the owner of the home, the incident was very upsetting. It's, publi- it's publicity, but it's not exactly the kind of publicity you desire to have. I don't want people thinking that when they come to the, Vel- the Velisca Axe Murder House, something's going to something's going to happen that's going to make them do something like that. The house remains open for tourist visits and overnight stays today. I could, I barely made it through it. The fact is, is I love how this woman comes right out. She's like, look. Publicity is publicity. Publicity is publicity, but I don't want to have this publicity because like, hey, if you're going to come over to the Axe Murder House, I don't want you to think that, you something know. Something bad's going to happen. You're going to get, you know hitting the chest with a sharp object of some kind. <laughs> really? They've made movies. Yeah. They've done, uh, I think the Velisca X murder house may have been an episode of supernatural, or I'm getting it confused with another one of my it's paranormal probably. shows. Probably. Um, no, that, yeah. that whole thing was the last bit there with the woman. I just couldn't help but laugh my ass off. Yeah. It's like, yeah, come over to the Axe Murder House. Oh, wait, you got stabbed in. How did that happen? <laughs> and dude's like, I'm not saying. I'm not saying you're going to stab yourself, yeah. but yeah. I stabbed myself. I'd like to welcome you to the uh, the radiation house. I'm betting he's not saying anything. Because, like, he did something stupid and, like, tripped and fell and impaled himself. Oh. And that's why he's just, like, yeah, something bad happened. Like he was trying to suck his own dick or something like that. Like some no. real embarrassing story. No, like he tripped and fell. Oh, and you're he, just saying something innocuous yeah. like that. Yeah, okay. And so, God, my head's terrible. And so he can't, he can't say, guys, yeah. listen, 
I tripped. I fell. I'm, well, here's I'm the other thing. Maybe something fucking crazy happened. And he just doesn't want to talk about it because he's like, eh, people ain't going to fucking believe me anyways. Yeah, also a possibility. See, I know that's what's going to happen to me. I sit here and talk about how nothing's happened, nothing's happened, nothing's happened. Something crazy is going to happen. Something fucking unreal is going to happen to me. And you're not going to say a word. And I'm not going to say a word because I'm going to be like, no one's going to believe this. No one's going to believe it at all. And I know it's it's nothing happens sub-level with me. No. It's always over the top. Yeah. So it's going to be some thing that looked like a ghost. Something of epic proportion. Yeah, something that looked like I a... I hope I'm there. Well, oh, so I do hope I. I'm there. So, But that's what I'm getting at. I'm going to be alone. <laughs> I'm going to be alone by myself. Dino's going to be somewhere else. He's going to be with me. Creative director <laughs> Dean's going to be with you. And... And I'm going to be by myself. I'm going you know to see. Who's gonna, you know who's going to be with you? HR. Mystique will be with you. Mystique. She doesn't even like me. All the more reason for her to be like, here you go. Go on the ship. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I guarantee that's what. What do you think now? But I'll, I'm going to probably do like the triple, like I'm going to do the, the three run homer. Yeah? Yeah. I'm going to see a ghost. I'm going to pursue the ghost, which is going to present me to an alien which is going to take me on a craft i'll get probed mm-hmm. and then i'll be in a ditch possessed by the ghost yeah yeah it's just all gonna happen all at once <laughs> and it's gonna be so outlandish and crazy that no one's gonna believe me They're bigfoot's gonna, be like, gonna eh. carry you to the road <laughs> Because so every, every story that I tell, this is going to be the next person that tells it. So you know Frank's crazy, right? Because <laughs> that's how it is now. Ask Frank about his chupacabra story. That's that's exactly how my friends approach everything that's benign, let alone this. I could buy a new vehicle and they'd be like, so you know Frank's crazy, right? So get a load of this shit. Yeah. That's, um, oh. you know, it's true. It's, uh, oh. So what do we got next, babe? We have H.H. H. Holmes. I know. Herman Mudgett himself, which I don't blame him for going with H.H. H. Holmes. I would too. Mudgett. That's a weird. It's not great. I think I think having the last name of Mudgett would bring anybody to do what H.H. H. Holmes did. <laughs> Oh, you seem really nice. What's your name again? It's 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 Her- Herman. 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 What? Uh, Holmes. What? What well, was that? I was. Did you say Smudget? I was working with a a a guy I work with. We were talking about this yesterday, or no, a couple days ago, and. Like, it's funny how you hear, like, celebrities, like, real names, mm-hmm. musicians' real yeah. names. You know, so, like, we brought up Sting because his name's Gordon. Gordon. You know, it's like, yeah. Okay. It's Gordon Sumter, but I always say in my head, Gordon Shumway, which was Gordon Elf. Shumway. There's only one Gordon, and he eats cats. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, There's Sting. only one Gordon, Gordon Shumway. And honestly... That's a badass name. <laughs> I mean, Gordon Shumway. Yeah, it's better yeah. than Herman Mudgett. Yeah, yeah. He's got an interesting story, though. I think he was towards the tail end of like lawlessness. 
like straight up legit lawlessness yeah. where you could just do whatever the fuck you wanted. Yeah. Well, what? I've started I've started the research um yeah. and I don't know. We'll we'll see because Well, what time period was it? When did that start? Uh, it was it was in the 1800s. It yeah. was right around the time of the Chicago World Fair. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cuz that's when he built his murder hotel. Spoilers. Well, I mean, honestly, if you don't know who H.H. H. Holmes is. And if you don't know about his murder hotel. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you didn't know he was a murderer, then, I don't know. What, what, what are you then doing? Then we hope you can work to be a horror fanatic soon. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, he was born in 1861. Yeah. And he died in 1896. Yep. So, actually, that that was towards that tail end of lawlessness. Yeah. Because it was peaked in the 1920s here in the States. Yeah. When gangsters were just going around shooting up fucking everything. Yeah, they were. Robbing banks. Bullets must have been free. What was uh what was that comic? It's uh Smoking Joe and the Scuggins gang. <laughs> yeah, who was that? John Mulaney. John Mulaney, yeah. <laughs> Read it in whole Smoking Joe and the <laughs> And the Snuggins. And the, the Scuggins gang. And the Scuggins gang. <laughs> Tell them we were here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it took a it took a down downturn yeah. after that. It was a little harder. Yeah. No, but then you know the mob came through in yeah. the sixties, seventies, eighties. Yeah. Eighties. They did. Yeah. They were doing whatever the hell they wanted to. Well, there uh, it, it could be argued there are groups doing whatever the hell they want now. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's clearly evident. Well, I guess we got to wrap this up. Since we're a quarter of the way into the next episode. (laughs) As we are wont to do. And again, we got another topic for an upcoming episode. So. It's, we, we got what, two years worth? Uh, no, we probably have exactly a year. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are deeper dives that we can do. Oh yeah. Yeah. On. Certain things. And this is episode 20. It is. Yeah. So for all of you that have uh, been around here since the beginning, you're awesome. You are. Thanks for being the horror fanatics you are. For those of you that are new, you're awesome too. Buckle up. Yes. Enjoy the ride. Yes. Because. Thanks for coming aboard. Yes. And thanks for sticking with us. Absolutely. We we love you. We appreciate all of you. We appreciate all of you. We really do. We sure do. We will check. Otherwise, the... it's just Frank and I talking to each other. Yeah, I mean, we we would do this uh, regardless of anybody listened. Correct. However, it's nice logging on to the host site and seeing people listen to this episode and that episode and see. I'm kind of disappointed that nobody asked about our Bigfoot theory. No. So we're just going to have to subject you to it in yeah, a future episode. We're just going to force feed it down, exactly. your, down your ear hole. <laughs> so thanks for listening, folks. If you need to know uh, anything new about us, go to ohthehorrorpodcast.com. Yep. If you have any ideas, comments, suggestions. Yep. Critiques. Yep. You can email us at oth. At, at seriouslydecent.com. Yep. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful week. And as always, make good 
choices. Take care, guys. <laughs>